Gracious God, we thank you for the great gift of being a community in Christ, and we pray that as we begin this new study on the book of Daniel, that we would learn, not just with our heads, but rather with our hearts, what it means to be faithful to you and to be citizens of your kingdom. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, well, normally when we start a book, I just start right with chapter one, but because the book of Daniel really is foreign to us, uh, or at least probably a little bit more so than the New Testament literature, I thought it'd be useful just to offer an intro and then maybe to read some text from the scripture that might set the book up. Because, you know, many of us are familiar by now with the context of first century um, Roman world in which the New Testament was born, but we're going to kind of go back in time to the 5th, 6th century BC for this, and it's a different context with different issues. And so uh, I'm going to kind of uh, spend one session on some preliminary Bible passages that can help us understand what we're going to study in Daniel. But first, just a little intro notes. Who was Daniel? He was a Jewish male who lived in the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BC. And this book of Daniel ranges from Nebuchadnezzar's reign, um, the Babylonian king from 605 BC, all the way through Cyrus's third year in 536 BC. Now, that doesn't mean that Daniel was written during that time. And even though scholars debate, the actual year of composition. A lot of people date it to the second century BC, at least in terms of its final redaction or coming together in its current form. Um, chances are that someone didn't sit down and write the whole book of Daniel from beginning to end in one take and then just have it be a complete product. Um, sometimes these things are pieced together and redacted by a scribe at the end. Now, this is a very exciting, but also a puzzling book. It is listed as a minor prophet in the Old Testament, but one of the things we'll notice is that Daniel doesn't really read like the other minor prophets. This is not like Amos and Hosea. It reads a little bit differently. It's also written in two different languages, both Hebrew and Aramaic, Aramaic being the language that Jesus most likely spoke and a language that came into usage after the Babylonian exile. And so the Aramaic is one of the indicators to scholars that at least some of this book was written at a later time than the events being recorded. But this was a really important book for Jews in the second century BC and also for first century Rome. Even Christians after the resurrection um, really valued the book of Daniel and would have studied it. It was clearly a very important book for Jesus and his understanding of himself as the Son of Man. Now, the importance of Daniel chapter 7, where we hear of this Son of Man, um, we can't understate, or I'm sorry, we can't overstate how important that was to Jesus's self-understanding. So one of the things we get to do is read about the Son of Man and its original context. Uh, in terms of genre of literature, you know, what kind of book is Daniel? Well, it's all over the map. Um, we have different genres within this book. You have heroic tales, you know, people who were obedient to God in the face of impossible odds. 
you have little snippets of wisdom literature. One of the things we'll notice is that the figure of Joseph is actually really important for the book of Daniel and lives in the background. And then you have this genre called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is one of my favorite genres of biblical literature, also one of the most misunderstood. And the word apocalyptic, the whole idea is that there is a truth, a truth about the cosmos that is hidden, it's veiled. But then what apocalyptic literature does, often with very puzzling imagery and strange symbolism, is it takes the curtain and you know, pulls it back so that we get to see the truth of what's really happening. And in the case of the Bible, the truth that God is actually really the one running the show. Um, the larger story of the book of Daniel is that there is a clash. There is a clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And one might even argue that this is the larger story or one of the subplots of scripture as a whole. But in the book of Daniel, it really appears to the untrained eye as if the kingdoms of the world are the ones in charge and that they get to do as they please and that there aren't any consequences for these worldly rulers doing what they want. But the people of God, especially in the midst of exile, actually say, no, all the events around us are you know, unfolding, we're in exile, but we see something else. We believe that God is in charge and we're gonna hold fast and we believe that God will establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so one of the themes of the book of Daniel and one of the things that will be interesting for us to talk about is, you know, is there a clash between the kingdom of the world that surrounds us with its values and its way of doing things and its powers and principalities and the kingdom of God that we have been baptized into? And if so, if there's a tension, how is it that we are to relate to the world? Are we to resist the world? Do we make friends with the world? Do we engage the world but do so cautiously? Are we here to transform the world? Is that our goal as Christians? Do we see them as two parallel kingdoms that have absolutely nothing to do with one another? You know, give to Caesar what's Caesar, give to God what is God's. You know, how is it? that if there is a tension between the values of the church or the values of the kingdom of God and the values of the world, how is it that we are to relate to the world? And then finally, before we actually get into some background text, one of the things that I'll just say about the book of Daniel is that we will read it Christologically. Um, and by that, I don't mean that everything's going to be a metaphor for Jesus, but we will read this as Christians because we are Christians. And because the book of Daniel was such an important book for the first Christians and the first followers of Jesus, and the themes of Daniel are very much relevant today, especially with respect to how we deal with this clash between the kingdom of the world in which we all live, move, and have our being, uh, and the kingdom of God, which we have pledged our ultimate allegiance to. Okay, so that's just a little background into Daniel. And before we dive in, not to the text itself, but to some of the background texts, I'm wondering if y'all have any questions about that or about 
uh, what's been said thus far. This is a controversial question, but some of the reading that I've done about Daniel suggests that he wasn't a real person. He was kind of like Jonah. What is your view on that? That's a great question, Evie, and I would be misleading you if I have thought uh, deeply, deeply about that. But one of the things that I would say is that if, if it were true that Daniel as a figure were a representative yeah. or what it meant to be a faithful Jew as a whole, or if they looked back upon this figure, Daniel, but kind of filled in the details with some of their own experience of what it meant to be faithful to God, that wouldn't scandalize me. Um, I'm not saying that's what I believe, but there are many, many ways to read scripture and the literal is only one of those ways. And so it wouldn't take away from the power and truth of the book uh, if it were true that, you know, Daniel was a real figure, but they really had to kind of fill in the details with some of their own experience. Not right. saying that's what I believe, but if it were so, it wouldn't take away the power of the book or be any less authoritative. I appreciate the fact that we're going to read this as Christians, mm -hmm. Christiolo Christiology, <laughs> that yeah. word. Um, but I'm just curious, how do Jews look at this book? How do uh, Jews in today's world look at the book of Daniel? That's a really good question. We're going to get into how Jews in the first century read the book of Daniel um, as, as we uh, study this text, because that's going to figure prominently into, like, we're going to actually have a whole session on how Jews in the first century would have read the book of Daniel later on. Um, how modern day Jews read it, uh, I'm not sure that's something I could speak to. Uh, One of the things that so the point that I hear Philip making, I think, is an important one. And Philip, correct me if I'm not hearing you correctly, but um, with the birth of the secular or secularism, um, the church's place in society, you know, we have a changed social location, if you will. I, I think I'm actually directly quoting your book, Philip. Um, You're correct, you are. Uh, <laughs> it's, <okay>. I, <laughs> it's probably bad to plagiarize in front of someone without crediting them. Uh, I need to learn that lesson. But um, so as a result, uh, we we're surrounded by something called secularism, which we can define and will throughout this course. But it raises the question, you know, how is it? the metaphor then becomes the church is in exile, right? We are surrounded by uh, values and um, a society that is not always fully aligned with the values of God's kingdom. And that's something we're going to tease out throughout the study. And so the question then becomes, how is it that we relate to that? And, you know, Christians and Jews have given many different answers throughout history. I, I listed some of those. And if you want to read Niebuhr's Christ and Culture, he throws out four different archetypes. There is resisting culture, there is transforming culture, there's, you know, making peace with culture, there's seeing it as kind of two parallel kingdoms. And so there's a lot of different answers we can give to that question. But the book of Daniel, I think, gives a pretty nuanced answer to that question as a whole. And that's something we're going to be exploring. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive in to scripture itself. Now, one of the things that we need to understand, understand the book of Daniel, 
is to understand the whole idea of exile and law and covenant and actually what was happening to the Jewish people and what their understanding was as they went into exile. And by exile, I mean, um, you know, you have the Davidic kingdom, you have King Solomon, you have the kings of Judah, but one day the Babylonians sweep in and uh, the people of Israel are no longer fully in charge of themselves. And so how do they understand that? Um, and so we need to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to read a few verses from chapter 28 and then from chapter 30. And mind you, this is right before the people of God are about to enter the promised land, but they have already left Egypt. They are a liberated people, but they are not yet in the land that God has promised them. And so this is what the book says. If you will obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in everything you undertake. He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people as he has sworn if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and if you walk in his ways. But if you will not obey the Lord your God. By diligently observing his commandments and decrees, which I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed when you come in, and cursed when you go out. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out against them one way and flee before them seven ways. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully with gladness of heart, for the abundance of everything. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you. The Lord will bring a nation from far away, from the end of the earth, to swoop down like an eagle, a nation whose language you don't understand, a grim-faced nation with no respect for the old and no favor to the young. When all these things have happened to you, the blessings and curses that I've set before you, if you call to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God. And you and your children obey him with all your heart, with all your soul, just as I'm commanding you today. Then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, gathering you again from all the peoples among whom the Lord your God has scattered you. Okay. So the people of Israel, they've not even made it to the promised land. And basically what I read to you says something along these lines. If you obey, no problem. You're blessed. You're going to be fine. Nations are going to come, but you're going to defeat them. You're going to have war, but it's going to be a piece of cake. If you don't obey, they're going to swoop in like an eagle. Uh, and they're not going to show any respect to the, the old or the young. And it's going to feel like a curse. And you're going to be thrown into exile. And then notice it says, when all these things have happened, basically the assumption is you're not going to obey and you're going to go into exile. But when you are in exile, 
if you and your children choose to obey yet again, if you return to the Lord your God, if you are obedient with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes, okay? So one of the reasons many scholars think that the book of Deuteronomy was redacted in its final form during the exile is because of the very clear understanding that they would go into exile. And it seemed much more likely that later scribes kind of redacted this in its final form in the midst of exile or after returning from exile than it did that Moses just kind of had this prophecy spot on and someone wrote it down at the time. Um, now, uh, a few things to note, then we'll kind of get into the conversation. There is a lot of if-then language. If we obey the law, there will be a blessing. If we do not obey, we will experience that as a curse. And so the emphasis on obedience and the penalty of disobedience is spelled out pretty quickly. The whole penalty of disobedience is laid out. You don't get to be your own king. You don't get to be in charge. Um, someone's going to swoop in and they're going to rule you. They're going to govern you. And they're not going to respect your traditions. They're not going to respect your customs. They're not going to have respect for the old uh, or they're not going to even treat the young well. Uh, and so that's going to be the penalty for not being obedient. Um, and so imagine the people being in exile what is their self-understanding for why they are in exile? Well, they were not obedient. Um, what is the cure for coming out of exile? It is returning to the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and obeying the law cost what it will. And so once we get into the book of Daniel, we're going to have people who might understand that their exile is the result of the people's disobedience and that the way to return from exile is through obedience. Now, what's the point of all this? Well, God tells us in verse nine, the Lord will establish you as his holy people. That word holy means set apart. And so the people of Israel, their self-understanding was always that they were set apart for something. Now, one of the things, um, Judy Fentress Williams, who's a professor of Old Testament at Virginia Seminary, she's written a lot, and she's not the only one who sees scripture this way, but she believes that scripture is dialogical, that it is in conversation with itself, often in tension, and that actually this tension is where the spirit shows up. But one of the questions I think that people might have might be intention in the Old Testament is set apart for what? You know, in verse one, it says, you've been set apart to be high above all the nations of the earth, um, that you are to be separate uh, and that you are to be a special people uh, and that if there are enemies, your job is to defeat them. Well, of course, in Isaiah 49, 66, we get a different story where uh, holiness means being a light to the nation so that God's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. But regardless of how the people would have understood this call to be holy, a few things emerge from the book of Deuteronomy that are going to be really relevant for our study of Daniel. Number one, the call is to holiness. However we understand that, that is what God wants for the people to be holy. Number two, obedience is really important. Uh, and number three, 
there are penalties for disobedience. And in the people's self-understanding, that meant real literal enemies swooping in like an eagle, as it says in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, and them being sent into exile. Meaning that it's really likely that the people in exile might have understood their experience as being something that was the fruit of their disobedience, maybe a form of punishment, and that the key to returning to a kingdom, a worldly political kingdom, where they kind of got to be in charge of themselves, was through a recommitment to the law and to a full obedience to God's decrees as they understood them. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and stop there and just, that's kind of the backdrop to exile. And I'm going to see how that resonates with you and what questions you have or what you want to add to it. Now, now, now I'm in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but just a note on obedience. Uh, I think it's important to note that the first of the commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. Yeah. And again and again, if you read through the prophets, the root problem is idolatry. That spells itself out in all sorts of immorality, but the root problem is religion. Yeah. So, um, and, and I think you're right, um, uh, Philip, that many of the prophets, you know, what, what was the sin one way or another? It was some form of idolatry of turning away from the Lord your God in order to worship some other thing. Yeah, it's a question of fundamental loyalties. It just comes up again and again and again. And fundamental loyalty really becomes the question of Daniel, right? Whenever you're now in exile, where, where is your fundamental loyalty? Or in the fiery furnace. In the fiery furnace. And so one of the things we're going to be invited to do in this study is to kind of make some connections. I mean, in this world, when you feel attention, when you feel attention, where is your fundamental loyalty? I mean, that's, a, that's one question the book of Daniel might ask. Plus that the story of exile is very significant mm. um, in our Christian Judeo tradition. But I'm just curious about the fact that why, why the option to say, well, we're gonna go in exile, we're gonna go off into our own utopia. Say that again. We're going to go off into our own what? Utopia. So we often see groups of people saying, well, I can't handle this. Let's just leave, mm. uh, which we know generally ends in failure. But I'm just curious, you know, that apparently wasn't an option. They were, I mean, to be exiled means you're out of something, you know, and that they're, you know the other appears you know could, could they have done something else yeah well i mean you know sadly uh it was a rough world and what this what exile meant was a big strong army coming in you know plundering killing taking people away you know kind of and uh, they're now in charge of all the resources and you know um what babylon did was they set up the, you know, that they would still kind of keep the ruler of Israel as a puppet king, but the puppet king was ultimately loyal to Nebuchadnezzar or the, the king of Babylon. And uh, if he didn't play by the rules, he was executed. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a pretty harsh reality. I mean, it was, it was conquest. I, I, I'd like to, 
yeah, yeah. I, um, I'm trying to speak English here. Uh, so I can't, I can't imagine anyone in Israel who, I'm sorry, Judah, in Judah who went to Babylon who chose to. The, the people in exile were all taken to exile and they didn't have as bad a time as they might have, but uh, they didn't choose to be there. And um, I think that uh, that sense of disconnection is under everything occurring to the people in exile. Well, I don't deny that. And I think that that's true for refugees all over the world today, that longing to return to something. Yeah, I don't think it's the same as, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't think that people are turning into pillars of salt for looking back. But it, I don't know, it's just a little bit of a tension for me. And, I, and, and maybe more realistically for me is the question of uh, flight or fight. But I, I think probably the situation for them at that time was that there weren't, there weren't any other issues. I mean, you're exiled and it's a, a military forced exile. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. You know, so one of the things, <laughs> if you were to kind of tap into our experience of, of exile, you know, I mean, if we were to think of kind of like our feeling, I mean, of, you know, this, that existential feeling of this world is not our true home or, um, or there's a tension between what I value and what I'm asked to do in my day-to-day -day life because that's how the world operates. One of the things that's true for kind of the affluent Western 21st century experience is that we have a million distractions. We can, we can go to our phone, we can numb out, we can, you know, we, we can do a million things to distract ourselves, which was probably not quite as uh, relevant. Um, you know, in the time of Daniel or Jesus. So, you know, one of the questions for us is, will we even look and acknowledge uh, the extent to which life on earth is experienced as exile and in which there really are tensions between what God asks of us and how the world works kind of with business as usual? I mean, we actually have to have the courage to look at that uh, in today's world as opposed to you know, numbing out or distracting ourselves from those questions. I actually think that Martha's question about, you know, why didn't they just hive off and do something else yeah. is really an important question. Um, and I mean it in this way, that both that the Jews, the prophetic tradition among the Jews said that, you know, if you're carted off into exile, don't blame it on them. You're the, you're the bad guys who, who, who deserve this. It is a judgment upon you. And therefore, to hive off and declare yourself pure denies one's own complicity in the disobedience. And, and the, the true, true test of the true statement of loyalty is to say, I must pass through this. Mm. And that the way is repentance. And the reason I say that, it, it, again, this is one of my favorites, but, you know, Jesus was really beat up by the establishment. And he never went off and started another Israel. 
he called them back to the true Israel. And today, the American way is if you don't like it, start another one. And where has that got us? Just Christian division after Christian division, each one of them claiming to be righteous. And this is an appalling situation. Anyway, Martha, thank you. That's a great question. Uh, well, I, I just stumble into this, but I, 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 I keep having visions of across the South, and and I, I know there are other places in this country where the Ten Commandments are posted outside the courthouse. And to me, as a New Testament Christian, and I guess I have to say that you know, I just, I'm appalled to see that. And I'm troubled by the pain that that's caused people. You know, where's the sense of forgiveness? Where's the sense of Jesus broke these laws and said, you're not here to live by these laws, get past it. Just try to focus on love, you know? And so I, I think we, I think we still use that idea of exile. And, and I think Philip, your comments about obedience is pretty instructive, but we are humans we're not infallible you know we make mistakes and i think the effort of all various christian groups is to somehow reconcile this idea of how do we when we make mistakes come back to being loved to knowing that we are loved by god and to try and do better you know, I guess the exile story is pretty black and white. The Ten Commandments outside of the courthouse is pretty black and white. And when we talk about the tension, to me, the tension of being obedient is also hoping for forgiveness and believing that Jesus said, you are forgiven. That doesn't give me the right to go out and not be obedient. So I don't know. I mean, this exile story for me is kind of the, uh, an emblem of that question. And the, the Jewish response is going to be one. Our response as Christians might be something else. Well, I think, in the, in, I think it's the same in each case. Uh, Repentance, turning around. That's the only way out. And one of the things that, you know, so and this, what, what we're naming here, this is what we're diving into in this, in this study. Um, you know, whenever I think of what does it mean to repent, um, there's both a, a continuity with maybe how sixth century Jews would have understood it and also discontinuity per Martha's point as someone who sees himself as redeemed by the blood of Christ. So. For me, what, you know, what I, I, um, I don't think of with repentance is to think, you know, of God. I mean, the caricature would be that God is like some kind of bookkeeper and I have broken an arbitrary law and I'm being punished for that act. And now I need to try really hard to do something so that God will then lift the punishment uh, as opposed to understanding, you know, as Paul says in Galatians, uh, God is not mocked. You reap whatever you sow. <laughs> you know, if you sow to the flesh, you reap according to the flesh. If you sow to the spirit, you reap according to the spirit. 
And so for me, a life of repentance is a continual life uh, of turning around, of seeking to follow God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, not um, to earn, not to get God's forgiveness, but because I have God's forgiveness and I'm seeking to move deeper into it and to know that the various ways my life doesn't align with who God is and what Christ has done with me is that which creates the exile, both for me and for others. Um, and so it, anyway, it's, it's a, it's an interesting conversation. Julie, go ahead. Well, I, you know, kind of thinking through this exile, I see really, you know, another contrast just between the old Testament relationship with God and the new Testament relationship with God in the sense that, you know, the, the, the Jewish nation was supposed to be separate and they were supposed to not really have contact with the tribes around them because that then they had the risk of becoming impure. And I, you know, and therefore they needed, you know, these laws to kind of corral them. And I think, um, you know, the, the relationship that we have after Christ comes into the picture is some of separateness, but it's also more of going out into the world and being the light of the world. In other words, don't hide off like, like Martha was saying, don't hide off with people who think like you. Um, you know, that's the easy way out. You, you know, you need to go out there and you need to be the light. And, um, and so I, I see that difference of, you know, kind of being very separate and not interacting with your surroundings to a call to actually go out and interact with all the diff difficulties and to follow that obedience marching through the world. And I think that's where we're going, um, it sounds like, in this book. John, it's Evie. Thank you, Julie. Go ahead, Evie. Um, I, I find the exile fascinating. Mm -hmm. For one reason, you remember how the prophet said that God told the people that were going to into exile to build houses, to have families. Yep. In other words, God sort of encouraged them to assimilate, not to the values of the, uh, of the, of the Babylonian culture. But he was probably saying, he was saying, I am sending you here. This is part of my plan. This is part of your punishment. But you are going into exile and you are going to learn to be loyal to me in this foreign culture. But don't you think it's interesting that God kind of said build houses and have families while they were in exile? He didn't encourage separatism or, or alienation. So one of the great comment, it's along the lines of Julie's and, and I mean, I think what we're dancing around here, okay, I think we're, we're all doing a dance. We're dancing around the fact that it's complicated, <laughs> that there are places where we have to enter the culture and fully incarnate and cooperate. And, and there's, places, there's places where we say yes and places where we say no. Right. right. And this is something we see in the book of Daniel. We'll see it in chapter one. You know, the king, uh, so Daniel and his friends, not to, to, to spoil it too much, but, you know, they, they changed their names. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Those are your new names. Uh, named, you know, probably after gods of some sort. 
And they say, sure, why not? Call me Shadrach, call me Meshach, call me, but no big deal, right? But then they say, here, I want you to eat this food. You know, here, here's some food from the king's palace. And they say, uh-uh, no, we're not going to go there because we're a holy people and, and we're supposed to eat this other food. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, that that's like a template for you and I, but what we see modeled there are there places where Daniel says, yeah, I can go along. I can serve in the king's court. I can help with dreams. I can do this, that, and the other. But then there's other places where Daniel says, sorry, you know, I can't, I can't go here because of my ultimate loyalty per Philip's point to God. And Evie, per, um, you know, to, to kind of go to your reference, what you're referencing is the book of Jeremiah, where, you know, God says, look, this is going to be 70 or so years. So I think it's in Jeremiah 29, verse 5, he says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. And, and that's what you're referencing from the 29th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. And you're right. You know, God says, you're going to have to figure this out for a while here. Um, but there's always the don't worship other gods. Right. <laughs> so live here, but don't worship other gods. And one of the things that we'll explore is the nature to which um, idolatry is not just about making a golden calf and saying, that's my God. Idolatry happens whenever we're committed to values, um, to, when, when we, our ultimate allegiance is to a value, a person, a thing, uh, more so than God. So one can be a Christian, but if your ultimate allegiance is to making money, that's idolatry, right? And so idolatry is a, a pretty, uh, pretty big concept. Well, just a note here, John, I, I'll bring it an, another time, but the classic statement of what we're after is the famous epistle to Diognetus, where he speculates, he said, well, Christians, now what are Christians? He says, well, in one way, they're just like everybody else. They live in Rome, you know, they build houses, they go to work, they eat dinner, whatnot, whatnot, whatnot. But, he says, they don't expose their children. But, they recognize a higher authority than the emperor. In other words, they distinguish themselves not by just standing out as being oddballs, but by certain things that are necessary expressions of what they believe. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that was a first century text that you're referencing. Yes. It's one of the classic statements. Yeah. Well, good. So why don't we go ahead? That's a good segue. We have 15 minutes left. Let me read really quickly uh, another passage, this one from the New Testament, because uh, I think you might find some parallels um, with what we've been talking about. Um, and this is, again, it's just to kind of set the stage for this study. So this comes from First Peter, late first century text, maybe early second century. Uh, and this is a Christian community. Uh, they believe in Jesus, right? Um, and they're just trying to figure out how to be faithful uh, in exile. Their exile is different, um, but they see themselves as being in exile because Caesar is worshipped and they're being persecuted. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. You see that word discipline or obedience. Uh, set your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring when he is revealed like obedient children do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, 
as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves and all your conduct, for it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you invoke as father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the age for your sake. Few quick notes. Um, first, um, there is that emphasis on obedience. Um, and the emphasis on obedience is a little bit different from Deuteronomy, um, but there is an emphasis on obedience. Um, and uh, it's obedient children, right? So the assumption is, is that there is a relationship with uh, the father. Um, the emphasis on holiness is there. And so, you know, with the advent or with the um, with with Christianity, Christians didn't kind of just throw out this idea of holiness. Um, they kept it alive uh, because the revelation, you know, to God in the Old Testament was their scripture, uh, and there's a continuity, right? Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, so the call to holiness is still there, and they interpret that perhaps in a different way, but they still have that call. Um, they see themselves as being in exile. They're waiting for something. Um, and um, even though, you know, the Babylonians haven't swept in and they don't imagine a, a political kingdom, um, they do observe that they worship the King Jesus, but King Caesar's the one calling the shots and persecuting their people. And then there's that whole idea of being ransomed. Um, notice the people of Israel were ransomed uh, or liberated from Egyptian slavery, but now it's been reinterpreted. They haven't been liberated from the slavery of Egypt, but they've been liberated from the slavery of feudal ways, feudal ways inherited from their ancestors. And, um, um, and it was the precious blood of Christ, you know, that liberated them. And when it says like a lamb without defect or blemish, that of course is making an explicit connection between the first exodus, right? The people being liberated from worldly slavery or from Egyptian slavery to the second exodus, um, Christ liberating them from the slavery of sin and death. Um, but here they are in exile and they are told to set all their hope on the grace that Jesus will bring when he is revealed, but that in the meantime, uh, their call is to figure out what does it mean to be obedient? What does it mean to, uh, to be in the world, but not of the world? To be present, but to know they're in exile. And so this Christian community is asking the same questions, even though their context is radically different. Okay, now? Yeah, you, we can hear you. Well, just to pick up on your point, it's a wonderful use of First Peter. Uh, that is the document that's going to be the study document for the next Lambeth Conference when it happens. That's interesting. Uh, that. And obviously people are sensing what you're sensing. This is a very relevant text. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
that they imagine themselves that they're in exile, that they're waiting on something, that there's dealings they have with the world, but there's also separation from the world, that, you know, they are to be obedient. But to your point, Martha, what does it say? Set all your hope on the grace that Christ will bring when he's revealed. I mean, there's just, it's not a strict if then, if you disobey, you're kicked out. I mean, you are obedient children but you're still in exile and you need to live in reverent fear. I mean, there's just like this tension that's, that's placed that we have to navigate. Well, our um, late 20th century, uh, Christians, you know, we were putting it in a pretty much of the same bind, uh, the same, you know, you will be a good girl kind of stuff. And, and as if, didn't have the right to consider no i i will decide what my life's going to be you know and and i know that was done from a loving perspective but you know it was pretty tough um in that generation in that period of you know being a young woman and i'm so i'm speaking from my own experience but i think there are many people who have who couldn't tolerate that sort of uh prejudgment you know you will be like this you will be and many people i think have left the church because they were seeking a liberation from that there wasn't any way out of that um, but some of us i think are just survivors of that kind of drumming into you you know the commandments and all of that so i'm just kind of musing well, on my experience I appreciate you all listening, but but I think there are real life situations, and I'm thankful that we're going to have this study because I think it does provide an opportunity to say, well, where, how do we live in this world and not be of it today? Hmm. One of the things that your comments raise for me uh, is that when First Peter speaks of obedience. Uh, he means it in a little bit of a different way in the sense that uh, for, first, for, for the author of 1 Peter, Peter, obedience is to a living Lord, not a static law. Now, I don't want to draw like, I, you know, one of the things we have to be careful about, and I totally get it, and so this is not a, but whenever we say, well, the Old Testament is about this, but I'm more of a New Testament person, et cetera, et cetera, we have to really watch that um and and be careful there because um right because the god of israel is our god <laughs> you know like the god before before uh, god revealed himself as jesus christ god in our story um called abram in genesis chapter 12 and we don't sever ties with that story um so we need to be careful that but but we can say that when first peter speaks of obedience uh, he does speak to a living Lord, a resurrected Christ. Um, uh, and so that emphasis has changed maybe a little bit. Thank you. And I, I also realize that I think this group has heard me on my feminist rant more than once. <laughs> and, I, and I'm going to mute myself on that as much as possible. Again. Um, uh, yeah. I... I've been going through lots of intensive Bible study and praying and all sorts of things during this pandemic time. And one joy that I've had is that seeing the world in a new light 
as God's creation, as being thoroughly permeated with the love of Christ, even in, in the midst of all this conflict, this exile we're in, I see the world in an entirely different light. The kingdom of God is being more here. You know, we live with that now and not yet, but I see a lot of the now in, in here, the, the presence of Christ here. It's sort of just a more optimistic view, which I'm very grateful for. Thank you for that, Evie. I appreciate you sharing. I'm glad you're with us for the study as well. Are we in exile is really uh, an interesting question to sort of mull on. Um, and uh, there's so many different dimensions. I think that's all, you know, all I'm going to say to it. But it's, you know, in our, you know, personal lives, exiled from, you know, exiled from God, exiled from ourselves, um, exiled from the, um, exiled sometimes from our values. Um, and so it'll be an interesting exploration. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Well, and thank you, Barbara. And, and to kind of bring this full circle, you know, exile doesn't begin with Babylonian exile. What happens in Genesis chapter three, right? You don't get to come back to the garden. Here's the, you know, the angel with the sword guarding, you know, we now live <clears throat> in the of Eden, right? And so one of the things to remember is that we're not, exile doesn't come into the picture for the first time in 586 BC or whenever it is that the uh, Babylonians swoop in and uh, destroy the Jewish temple. Um, exile is the story starting in chapter three of scripture. And, you know, as to that question of what is it, you know, how do we relate uh, in exile? And where is it that we say yes to the world? Where do we say no? Truly, one of the great pains of uh, the church today, and by the church, I mean the church universal, is that we all say no and yes to different things. And often what one Christian says no to, the other Christian says yes to. Um, you know, so we see this most clearly in politics on the right and the left and how uh, maybe conservative Christians, what they say yes and no to versus progressive Christians versus Christians on the other side of the globe, perhaps in Africa. Um, and so it's really hard to see one another. Um, but I think going back to something Philip said about like not leaving, you know, building off your comments, Martha, of like staying in it and repenting, right? Right. Instead of like fighting and pointing fingers saying, I must repent. I must find my complicity in this moment. Uh, and I must figure out what does it mean uh, at this moment for me to turn to the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and to acknowledge my role um, in this collective exile we face. I mean, that's kind of what repentance is, as opposed to pointing the finger and saying, you know, if someone else would change, then we'd be out of exile. Rather, you know, as we approach Ash Wednesday, as we approach Lent to say, actually, uh, I might not have all the answers. I might think that there's things that other people do that are absolutely awful. I do have convictions where I know that I have to say no to some things, but there's always going to be plenty for me to repent of. And in the midst of exile, this is what God asks of us. I wonder how that lands.
Well, I'm the one who, oh, sorry. No, now, you, Philip, you're, uh, go ahead and take yourself off mute. You just put yourself on mute. Oh, I'm sorry. There you go, we can hear uh, you. I never, I always get confused about that. Well, anyway, no, I, I just feel so strongly about this, having lived in Africa for 10 years, come back here and just watch the churches flailing among themselves. And everybody's righteous, everybody's right. And it's a formula of disaster. Ash Wednesday is a good solution. What do we say on Ash Wednesday? I'm dust and to dust I shall return. It's a place of humility from which the season begins. Um, it's not, you know, I mean, Ash Wednesday is about a lot of things, I think. But Ash Wednesday is certainly not about uh, I'm right and everyone's wrong. <laughs> well, I think the wonderful thing is the prophet Isaiah begins his prophecy and says, whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips. Mm -hmm. Prophet of the Lord. And, and again, I want to go now back to what, you know, to, because this whole conversation presents a tension for me because of the setting in which we hear it. And um, many of us, just to be alive is to be programmed with so much shame and so much guilt and so much poor use of authority and so much um, horrible deeds in the name of God. Right? Like we have just been awash in that, that we almost have an allergy to words like obedience and repentance. And so part of what we have to do here is actually to kind of clean the lens and to say, okay, let's, let's take all that off the table and let's look at what God means by repentance. Let's look at what God means by obedience. Um, let's not kind of project like our, our own understandings onto these terms, which we're all prone to do, which then becomes a block to actually hearing the word of God as the word of God is presented. But let's ask the question, what does humility mean really? What does repentance mean really? What does obedience mean really? Because um, it might not be what we think it all means um, the first time we, you know, take a crack at it. I appreciate that, John. And I realize we're getting past our time here, but I think a lot of us accepted a more progressive, New Testament Christianity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was the only way to survive. You know, I mean, there was often so much belligerent condemnation and, and rejection of our own identity uh, that the old ways of doing things just, it just didn't allow for the joy of life. Mm hmm so i think what you're suggesting is what well, how did we get to this point let's go back to find out what does that what does repentance mean and i think in many cases we many of us would return to a more traditional view of the old testament and of god's calling us to live in an exiled life but it's got to have a place of joy we can't just wear that sock sack of cloth forever you know Oh man, I, I was gonna show up in sackcloth next week. <laughs> Good so, luck. But, See you later. <laughs> so there's not gonna be a word of disagreement from me on that. You know, I mean, part of what Jesus said, but I am gonna offer a, a nuanced twist. You know, Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. 
or um, as you know, even spoke about um, um, giving us the joy that he had with the Father before the world began. But luckily, the word repentance, I mean, it, the, the Greek word's metanoia. It's got two translations. You can choose which one you like. One is to turn, to turn around. The other is a shift of the mind or a shift of perspective. Um, but whenever we talk about, let's just use the, for a moment the word turning. What we turn to is not a particular religious paradigm, right? We're not turning uh, away from progressive Christianity towards a different Christianity or turning away from an old Christianity towards a progressive Christianity. What we're actually learning to turn to uh, is the living God himself. <laughs> and that uh, is what, I mean, that's ultimately what Daniel's all about. It's not turning to a rule that says jump in the furnace once we get to that chapter, but we're turning to a God that we know so well and love so much that we're willing to jump in. And that is an adventure. That is a wild ride. That is joy and sorrow, life and death. Uh, uh, just a, you know, the life of faith, you know? So that's what ultimately we're going to get into.